So we are continuing this sermon series, You Be the Judge, and we're still talking about the fact that as much as we might think that uh, judge not lest ye be judged is our kind of overriding message, there are times in our Christian life where we do judge. This morning we're going to talk about the theme today's restoration. I'm going to be reading a, a very short passage here from the book of James. This is actually the concluding two verses from the book of James, from James chapter 5, verses 19 and 20. And James writes this, My brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. So to start off in talking about this passage, I'm going to ask kind of a rhetorical question. I don't need you to actually raise your hands this time. But just, can you think of anyone you know who's left their Christian faith? It might be someone who was raised in the faith for their whole life and then as an adult later made a decision they weren't going to follow. It might even be someone who professed faith, who first came to faith as an adult and later, for whatever reason, moved away from that faith. Well, for anybody in the room who still kind of wonders whether it's right when we talk about there being good opportunities for judgment, let me just point out that just in, in asking you that quest question, I put you in a position of having to make a judgment, right? You had to think through people you know. I'm guessing some people may actually have occurred to you, and you had to make a judgment. Is that a person that I'm thinking of who has left the Christian faith in my judgment? So the question kind of as it pertains to this sermon series when we talk about this passage becomes, first, is it okay? Is it okay for us to make that kind of a judgment? And if it is okay, what do we do with that judgment once we've made it? So I'd like to probably, I'd make the argument, I think, that it's actually pretty rare for someone to just kind of suddenly out of the blue decide they're going to abandon their faith. It may not be impossible, but I really do think that's actually pretty unusual. More often, I think it's kind of this gradual kind of sliding away from the faith almost imperceptibly until one day maybe we realize that someone we know actually has abandoned the Christian faith that they once proclaimed. And then we wonder, how did that happen? How did they slide away? Maybe why didn't we notice that it was happening sooner? Was there anything we could have done? Well, I gotta tell you, in, in the earliest forms of Christianity, in the kind of Christianity living out the Christian faith that we see modeled in the New Testament, there was an expectation that each and every Christian would care so deeply about each other's faith that they would do anything and everything in their power to keep that person from straying. Okay, I mean, it was deeply understood that to make the personal decision to profess faith in Christ also meant making the personal decision to become part of a community of mutual accountability and mutual responsibility, to help each other to walk in the way of Jesus Christ, to help each other to do what we're focusing on this entire year, to grow into the mind of Christ. 
members of the earliest Christian community both accepted and expected that this accountability and responsibility would take place within the community. Okay, it was a way of life for them that had been modeled throughout both the Old Testament in their scriptures, but also in the life of Jesus and his disciples. And so if you, in your bulletin a couple of weeks ago, we started putting out these daily readings to help you kind of look at some other scriptures through the week that follow the same theme that we're preaching on Sunday morning. And if you're doing those, and I hope you are, this coming Sunday, one of the readings you're going to see is an Old Testament story from 2 Samuel, okay? And it's a story of the prophet Nathan holding King David accountable when David commits adultery with Bathsheba, another man's wife. You're also going to read a New Testament story from the book of Galatians, which is all about the apostle Paul holding the apostle Peter accountable when Peter begins to kind of slide back from his Christian understanding of salvation through faith in Christ alone to a more Jewish perspective, the way he was raised thinking. And Paul holds him accountable to that. And so this whole expectation there was in the early church community of mutual accountability, it wasn't something entirely new for these Christians, but it was something that they fervently believed was absolutely critical to the survival of their community. So James, in this book, just a little bit, a few verses earlier in the chapter that I started with, we didn't read this, but just a few verses before that, it says, James writes, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so you may be healed. The prayer of the righteous person is powerful in what it can achieve. Let's hear that again, right? Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so you may be healed. The prayer of the righteous person is powerful in what it can achieve. Confessing sin to each other is a hard thing to do. That is a hard thing to do. But folks, this is how the early church operated. It's how the early church worked. There was this mutually understood need to be open and honest with each other about how our walk with Christ, how our faith journey was going. If we were going to avoid wandering from the truth. Now what happened is over the first 1500 years of church history, this practice, okay, of confessing our sin to each other, what happened is it got institutionalized in a system of confession and penance in private with a priest instead of with each other. So this practice they was kind of being followed, but it got institutionalized. And eventually, in the Protestant Reforma Reformation, they did away with this practice, right? They did away with it because the emphasis on confession had shifted away from this idea of mutual accountability, and instead, the focus was on the pronouncement of forgiveness of sin by the priest. And the Protestants, rightly, believed God could do that. God could pronounce that forgiveness in the believer's heart. A believer could receive that in their own heart. So we didn't need this formal system of a confessional. Okay, but about 200 years later, 
in the 1700s, the founder of Methodism, John Wesley, he kind of realized there was something wrong with it. He believed strongly in the biblical idea of the power and the necessity of mutual accountability among believers to avoid straying from the Christian path. So you know what he did? He made being part of a group dedicated to confession of sin, dedicated to helping each other to stay on the path of Christ, he made being part of a group like that a mandatory part of membership in his Methodist movement. Mandatory. And you had to prove you'd participated. What happened was eventually the Methodist church moved away from this requirement too. Why? Because the commitment to hold each other firm in the faith is one of the hardest demands in all of Christianity. It's interesting, though, because liturgy kind of lasts and perseveres. And we actually still see remnants of this expectation of this mutual responsibility, mutual accountability for each other's faith lives in our baptism liturgy. Now, these things become very kind of rote. We hear them and we say them, and sometimes we don't really think about them very much. But one of the questions the congregation is asked in a Methodist baptism is this. Will you nurture one another in your Christian faith and life and include the person now before you in your care? If you've been here in a Methodist baptism, you've probably heard that before. But I want you to pay attention to that. Look what that says. The first half of that has nothing to do with the person being baptized. It says, will you nurture one another in your Christian faith and life? Nurture one another and include this person now before you in your care. So what that language meant was, are you going to continue doing this mutual accountability that you're called to do, and this person who's now being baptized into the faith, are you going to include them in that? And the response that you give, that you're supposed to give, it not only affirms that with an emphatic yes, we will, it includes the words, we will pray for them that they may be true disciples who walk in the way that leads to life. Because remember what James said in that passage we just read, right? The prayer of a righteous person is powerful in what it can achieve. So this liturgy holds within it this expectation that the righteous of the congregation are going to hold this person in prayer, and that's going to help keep them firm in the faith. Mutual accountability. But if you think about it, to have this kind of mutual care and accountability for each other, it requires us, it absolutely requires us to continually be making judgments about the health and well-being of another person's faith, of each other's faith. If we see something going on in someone else's life we're worried about in their faith life, we're supposed to have the courage to ask them about it. And if someone actually has the courage to confess something to us, we need to have the good judgment to know how to respond to that confession. 
When we see someone who in our judgment is veering off the path of Christ, our responsibility is to guide them back. And when someone tells us that we're veering off the path, we need to accept that judgment. We need to confess our error to them, and we need to modify our behavior. See, the point of this judgment that we're called to do, it's not to criticize, it's not to scold, it's not to condemn, which is what we usually think judgment means, but it's to help guide them gracefully back onto the right path. And this whole system of mutual accountability, it, it falls apart without a loving and grace-filled approach. Now, I have another question for you, and this time it's not rhetorical. I actually want you to raise your hand. Did any of you teach your own children to drive? Oh, wow, that's actually a lot compared to first service, and I'm assuming those of you who did not raise your hands decided to actually safeguard your own sanity and got a driver's ed teacher to do it for you or something. That, that makes all kind of sense. Okay, but I'll tell you, I, I taught both our daughters to drive. I gotta be careful, they're in the congregation. I taught both our daughters to drive and they are both excellent drivers today. They really are today. But at first, that first time out, you know what I'm talking about, right? White knuckles holding on to the door handle, right? Pumping a brake pedal on the passenger side that is not there, right? And don't name any names. I could name names. I'm not going to. However, I'll bet you can think of some bad adult drivers who you really don't like being the driver when you go out together, right? For me, one of the worst things is when, you know, the, the veering out of the lane and the big correction back, right? And you're talking, you're paying attention. It's in the big correction back, and it's like car sick. You know, that, that for me, that's one of the worst, okay? And you've got white knuckles, just like when you taught your kids to drive the whole time. But you're trying to make conversation, right? But what about a good driver? What about a good driver? A good driver is making those very same course corrections, but they're doing it continually, making small, almost imperceptible adjustments so you don't even notice that you're staying where you belong. But either way, what happens if those course corrections aren't being made? What happens? You go off the road. Maybe you go off the road into a ditch that's really hard to get out of. Or maybe, maybe you even crash and end up dead. Right? And this is the point James is making in this scripture reading today. The reason we need to make judgments about each other's faith, the reason we need to have the courage to hold each other mutually accountable when we start to veer off the path of Christ is that the same thing that is true about staying in our lane when we drive is true about our spiritual lives as well. It's a lot harder to get someone back on the road when they're down in a ditch. 
It's a lot easier to stay on the road if there's someone there to help us with these small, almost imperceptible course corrections. But the lesson from James also says, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring them back, remember this. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death. Right? I mean, just like the car going too far out of its lane can result in physical death, James says that veering off the path of Christ results in spiritual death. And I wonder if we still believe this. I wonder if the reason the practice of mutual accountability and correction has disappeared from our faith is because we don't really believe anymore that it's a matter of spiritual life and death. I wonder what would happen in our Christian communities if every single Christian, every single Christian was invested in a trusted relationship with a few other Christians who promised to hold them accountable when they saw someone in that group veering off the path. I wonder what would happen if every single Christian would have the courage to trust a few other Christian friends with their heartfelt confession of sin, their deepest doubts, their toughest questions, and their hardest faith struggles. I wonder if we'd see far fewer friends and relatives defecting from the faith that they once claimed because throughout their faith lives, there were people who cared enough about them to guide them back onto the path when they first noticed they needed a course correction. Now, there's, there's one other thing in this passage from James that I think is interesting too, though, right? Because he says not only whoever turns a sinner from the error of their ways will save them from death, he also then says, and will cover over a multitude of sins. Isn't that interesting? We'll cover over a multitude of sins by restoring a fallen person to their faith. Now, now you read commentaries, the Bible scholars kind of disagree a little bit to some extent about just what sins it is James has in mind, being covered over by restoring someone to the faith. But a lot of them think that it's because the earliest Christians believed that the failure of the Christian community to do that, the failure of the Christian community to restore someone who had fallen away, that itself was sin, a sin of omission, the failure to restore a fallen believer. Since this Christian community was an intentional community that lived with this expectation of mutual accountability, to fail to reach out to someone who had fallen to fail to do the hard work of restoring someone to the faith, well, that was to fail each other. It was to fail the community as a whole, and it was understood as community sin. Every single member of that faith community was guilty of the sin of not reaching out to restore the fallen member. And what James is saying is that if one person in that faith community, if one person succeeds in restoring someone who's fallen away, it covers over all of those sins of the faith community, erasing them from the community's record. 
And at the same time, by restoring someone to the faith, the community has covered over or actually prevented all the sins that that one who had strayed would commit apart from the faith of Christ. So a few years ago, before my mom passed away, she told me about a conversation that she'd had with several of her friends. And the conversation revolved around just how many of their children, all of whom had been raised in the Christian faith, were actively still practicing their Christianity. And she told me those statistics were not very good. Maybe, she said, among she and her friends, maybe one in four or five of all the kids they thought they'd instilled their Christian faith in were professing Christian faith as adults. One in four or five. And that really grieved my mom and her circle of friends. And I know, because I've talked to you, there's a lot of people here at Living Word who share in that grief. So I'll tell you a couple things that I told my mom. And the first of these is, doesn't really make it any better, but as much as we might think it is, this phenomenon is nothing new. It's nothing new. In fact, the entire first nine chapters, think about that the first nine chapters of the book of Proverbs addresses the reality of the danger of children slipping away from their faith. Nine chapters. And in these chapters, a father, and this is traditionally understood to be Solomon, but a father again and again implores his son to stay on the right path. Listen to just a few of these from Proverbs, very ancient writings. Proverbs 1, 8 and 10. Listen, my son, to your father's instruction. Do not forsake your mother's teaching. If sinners entice you, do not give in to them. My son, do not forget my teaching, but keep my commands in your heart. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. My son, pay attention to what I say. Listen closely to my words. Above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. Do not swerve to the right or to the left. Keep your foot from evil. And it goes on and on like this throughout Proverbs, not one through nine. And ultimately, at the end, towards the end of these chapters, the writer of, prophets, of Proverbs turns into a prophet. He actually assumes God's voice. He speaks with the voice of God and says, Now then, my sons, listen to me. Blessed are those who keep my ways. For whoever finds me finds life and receives favor from the Lord. But whoever fails to find me harms himself. All who hate me love death. See, children have been tempted away from the paths of righteousness since the very beginning of time, since the beginning of time. And as the song we sang a few minutes ago just pointed out so perfectly, we need to know and trust that God is continually and constantly reaching out, doing his work to invite them back home. Know that. 
But also, the other thing to remember gets back to what we talked about James saying and what James wrote. Prayer is powerful. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful. Each and every one of us has at our disposal a powerful tool to help restore those who've fallen away back into Christian faith. Prayer. Prayer. As a community, we believe in the power of prayer, and to that end, one of our members, maybe you know her, Della Jenkins, has done this awesome thing. She has begun a new prayer group that meets Monday afternoons specifically, specifically to pray for friends and family who've fallen away from the faith. It's awesome. If that sounds like something that you'd like to be part of, you are welcome to be part of it. The information about it is in the front of the bulletin, or you can check there's a box on the back of your Connect card right here on this bulletin. It says James 5, 1920. That's what we're talking about today, prayer groups. If that's something you'd like to be part of, check that or just show up. If you check that and turn it in, someone will be in touch with you about it. Because prayer groups like this can be a powerful part of restoring someone who has wandered away back into the faith. But there's also the other end, the front end, right? The front end. We need to help people stay on the path in the first place. So if the idea of participating in a gender-specific band of three to five others with the serious intentional purpose, not Bible study like we do so much of here that is awesome and wonderful, not book study, which is wonderful, but with the intentional purpose of mutual faith accountability. If that sounds like something you'd be interested in being a part of, there's also a spot on the back there that says accountability group. You can check that. And over the next few weeks, you'll be hearing more about opportunities to learn more about that. And we'll reach out to you about that. And you can certainly check them both if you'd like to. Because folks, we need to get serious about turning the tide of people just wandering away from the faith. We need to accept the responsibilities that go with Christian community. And this is one of them. Solomon, James, the early church, John Wesley, all of them have pointed us in the right direction. And it's up to us now to join them in following Jesus on this path that he laid out for us. Amen. Amen.